Hi, I'm Bernard Leung and you may know me as the executive who really wants to buy a property through Property Guru and in my spare time, I really need to know what is happening with the prop tech sector and the venture capital side. You're listening to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. And today I have Steve Meluish, co-founder of Property Guru and venture partner in Wavemaker VC. He's a guest that I've been wanting to get on the show. So. Steve, many thanks for coming on the show. Great to see you, Ben. Yes, and you have probably have very interesting experience as a startup founder and now moving into the venture capital business. So before we get onto all the interesting stories of Property Guru and Wavemaker Venture Capital, can you talk a little bit about how do you start your career? Sure. So my background is, uh, you know, my father was uh, was in the army, so he moved around every two years, and uh, so new home, new school, new friends every couple of years, and uh, as a result of that, you know, I kind of got a, a bug for, for moving around, but I was always quite curious around technology when I was a kid, and so I taught myself coding. I was the only kid in the school I went to to do computer science and I managed to find a teacher who would help me do that and get me through to get the grades in that. And then went on to do communications engineering because in those days, which is showing my age now, uh, late 80s into early 90s, communications was, uh, telecommunications was starting to liberalize and started to become a little bit more popular and uh, it was kind of the precursor to the whole um, internet boom and kind of the driver behind the internet boom. Um, so. I did a communication engineering course and I joined a, a number two telecoms company in those days in the UK, which was fighting the incumbent. And it was highly innovative and I, and I learned a lot with that company in terms of innovation and uh, what they were doing in terms of branding and, and trying to compete with a, with a monopoly. And uh, I absolutely loved that. It was, it was really, really exciting times because the telecommunications markets around the world were starting to liberalize. You know, regulations were going from fairly black and white to grey to you know become a little bit clearer as the market's liberalised, and um, I, I saw that and I, I was able to participate in that both in the UK and also then Europe and also then on a more global basis, and that was just uh, really really fascinating seeing the dot com boom take place, dot com crash take place, and then the interrelationship between the internet and also telecommunications, which then kind of suffered as well. So I spent the first 10 years of my career in telecoms, and then I spent the last 15 years doing more entrepreneurial stuff. So, and I kind of got the bug a little bit from the telecoms days when you know all the things I was doing was, it was pioneering, it was new markets liberalizing, it was new businesses being created, and I was kind of in this ambiguous parts of the business, creating things from nothing albeit within a large organization. I then took that out and when I um, when I left telecommunications, I spent uh, some time building my own business which was helping other companies to launch internet services and uh, mobile services and also working with an investment bank in London which was helping digital media companies to, to grow and, and raise money, including a small company in those days called Skype, when it was 10 people in, the, in, a, in a small shop house, in, effectively a shop house in Soho in London, and who wanted the telecommunications experience. And, I, and I, it was really interesting and fascinating insight for me, and I got a, kind of got the, the digital media startup bug from that as well, and seeing you know, hundreds of business plans, meeting a whole bunch of founders and VCs, and helping some of these companies to raise funding and help them grow. And then, um, kind of, the, as a result of a six-month stint traveling around uh, Asia with my girlfriend, in between the telecoms job and other things, 
really, really getting the bug from for Asia. So I, I had a post-it note on my wall which had digital media Asia startup, and so that kind of focused where I wanted to be. And I was then looking at roles in uh, for startups and VCs in Shanghai, going back and forth from London. And then my wife's company had a real organisation offered a role in uh, in Singapore. We went, oh shit, Singapore! You know, it's, uh, it's it's boring. Why do you want to go to Singapore when we really want to be in real Asia, which in those days, you know, in the early two thousands was China. And uh, but we said it's going to be a lot easier to go from Singapore to China, and then 15 years later, uh, I'm still sitting in Singapore <laughs> once the roots start uh, taking shape. And so um, in between, a little bit of angel investing, including in Singapore, you know, made a couple of investments in Singapore. One of which I was asked to come along and help, and then run, which is a mobile content company, in 2006, and then end of 2007 started Proper Year, and then that kind of consumed. About nine years of my life, or ten years of my life, and I guess you know more recently been doing other things, including again spending more time on angel investing, supporting startups, and also Waymaker.、Mm. So in your career journey, given that you have such a wealth of experience from the telco side, the startup and angel investing side, and then of course building your own company, yeah, what are the interesting lessons you can share with my audience? Life lessons. Life lessons.、Um, Couple of things, I guess. Well, a few things. So one is, I think, timing, the importance of timing. So if I reflect a little bit back to my telecoms days, the company I was working for in the, it got acquired by a company called Cable Wireless. It went through a period where it was trying to benefit from the whole internet boom, and had this fantastic vision and strategy, which was called Pi, people, information. Entertainment in the palm of your hand, and the vision was everyone would have this magic device in this palm of their hand, which would con- connect to these things called ASP, which we now call cloud, and it will all connect nicely together, and you'll be able to control the whole of your life through this thing. Fantastic vision, and it made a big pivot. It sold, I think, about fifteen billion dollars worth of assets like Hong Kong Telecom, Optus to Singtel, and had a Singtel stake. Dispose all these assets, and then bought. A whole bunch of internet assets, about twenty-four internet assets, and then wrote most of those off later on. But including MCI, Worldcom's internet backbone, some good stuff as well. But the thing was, fantastic vision, just way too early. It's like ten, twelve years too early. And so, if you then had that vision ten, twelve years later, it would have been a fantastic thing to do. But it's just way too early. And I reflect that to more recently with with the property guru experience. One of the reasons why I believe property guru has been successful is because the timing was right. Now, did we know at the time that timing was right? No, but there were signs, right? So we we knew that population was growing. We knew that middle class was growing. We knew that there's obsession and, and and heavy investment taking place in property. And as a number one asset class, that was going to continue, particularly in Asia, in terms of home ownership and also investing in real estate. But at the same time. Online adoption, at least in Singapore, surprisingly was quite low in 2007. The infrastructure was very good; broadband penetration was very high, but people were not using the internet in those days. But you had internet banking starting, DBS launching internet banking. You had AirAsia doing low-cost airlines. You're booking with a credit card using the website. You had people e-commerce in those days with a company called eBay, which most people wouldn't have heard of now, but、uh, importing handbags and shoes from eBay into Singapore. So you had early signs of this. And so, in in hindsight, you know, you realise that actually the timing was right. So timing timing was a big thing. 
Related to timing, I think, is this whole thing around, you know, is it disruption, revolution taking place or evolution taking place? And I've come to the conclusion, you know, through the, both the telecoms experience and also through startup experience, that things just take longer than you expect, right? So everyone expected, uh, you know, this, this pie thing to take place. It took 12 years before we've really taken shape. You know, everyone says, uh, you know, we, we thought the same in probably Europe when we're expanding to new markets. We have to rush to new markets because if we don't, we'll miss the opportunity. But in reality, things just take a little bit longer. It takes longer to build the business. It takes longer to get the scale. It takes longer to build the brand. And, uh, you know, things that look like an overnight success have actually really taken 10 or 15 years or 20 years before they've got there. And you see that with Amazon, you see it with Alibaba and Tencent. They've been around for 20 years. But everyone's talking about fairly recent phenomena, but it's actually, you know, 20 years in the making. Mm. So other than timing, any other things that you think might be also important as a set of life lessons for my audience? Life lessons? I think in terms of life lessons, I think the, uh, the other thing that I would uh, call out would be if I look back at one of the most important times and, and milestones for me in my, I guess, career or life in the last sort of 20 plus years, it's been around, I deliberated for, for many, many weeks and months about whether to take a break. Or do I go from this one, you know, career to the next career to the next career? And I, and I then decided that actually, to, you know, I was going to take six months out. I, I really stressed about it at the time. I remember it quite clearly. Thinking, oh, six months is such a long time, right? You're going to take six months out and just go on holiday for six months, right? Uh, and I thought, well, okay, well, I'm really brave, right? I'm going to six-month break with my then-girlfriend, now wife. And actually, when we were traveling around Southeast Asia, it was like four weeks in Cambodia, five weeks in Cambodia, and then five weeks in Myanmar. And, and it felt like we were you know, being quite brave and big, but actually we were meeting people who had been traveling for two years or three years. And the overall scheme of things, that six months or one year or two years out of the whole of your life is nothing. It's like a, it's a drop in the ocean. And so, and I learned an enormous amount about myself, but also in terms of, you know, just it's, it led me on the journey to be here, ultimately, and things that are important to me now have been shaped by that one experience. So if I hadn't taken that time out, I wouldn't have got that perspective and uh, clarity about what I wanted to do. So I, another life that I would encourage, you know, at some stage you like to take time out, and the bulk of time out, not a week or a few days in between breaks, but, uh, but a, a proper break. Okay, so <laughs> the main subject of the day, we want to talk about two things. I think the first I want to talk about Property Guru today, I think is probably the leading real estate platform in Southeast Asia and originally started in Singapore and you have been the co-founder and the CEO formerly. I think now you have transferred it to Hari. That's right. And so I, I want to actually dive deeper back in the entrepreneurial journey part before yeah. you transition to your current role. Can you talk about the backstory when you founded Property Guru? Because I know it's an interesting story regarding golf courses who also involved, right? Golf courses? You were supposed to do something else. Oh, that! Yes. I forgot, I've forgotten about that. <laughs> You're right, actually. Where did you dig that up from? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I did actually look, I spent some time looking at the opportunity for indoor golf courses. And I had no, I had no interest in golf necessarily, but I, it looked like an interesting opportunity. But there's a whole other story around that, which I can share another time if you're interested. Uh, but anyway, I decided not to do that. And uh, I was running this mobile content company, and uh, in 2007, the whole, the whole property market exploded, and uh, the population went, from, you know, it was, it was growing at one percent or so. And it was then it started growing at seven percent, and you know, over a relatively short space of time, went from 4.4 to 5.4 million. So next to one million people in, into the country. So put a lot of pressure on, on housing. You had this big end block fever, you know, enforced block sale where the property developers come along and 
buy up the whole property and uh, demolish it and rebuild at higher density in many cases. And so you had this kind of fever taking place and like $13 billion worth of transactions took place in a very short space of time. And so what the consequence of that was I was renting in those days and uh, I had to move out pretty fast because the place had gone M-block. And um, the first thing I did was a fairly recently arrived foreigner in Singapore, had been in the country for about you know, less than two years at that stage, was to, to go online because uh, previously, you know, living in Europe, everything was online, grocery shopping and travel, everything was online. And to my surprise, this, you know, there was nothing there. And that kind of then prompted me to then go away and think a little bit about this and research this, this opportunity. And as part of that process, not only did I realize there was a big opportunity, both in terms of like obviously real estate and Southeast Asia and population growth and middle-class growth, but also this business model existed in a number of markets around the world, in around 10, 12 markets, France, Germany, China, Japan, Australia, it, it seemed to be a successful business model, you know, so very, very profitable, very cash generative, 50 to 70% profitable kind of businesses in all these countries. So it looked like the business model kind of worked. Not only did it work, it seemed to work across multiple locations and geographies. It wasn't like constrained to one location. So researched it and looked like an interesting idea. I put together a very mini business plan, which I then pitched to one of the investors in the, the previous company I was running. And uh, he then introduced me to my co-founder and then you know, my co-founder was, was dating a real estate agent and uh, he was a techie, is a techie. Uh, Yanni and um, you know we it was a bit of a leap of faith because neither of us knew each other at that point. I'd had some pretty horrible experiences working with Finnish people before, and uh, <laughs> I'd vowed never to work with Finnish people again. But um, we worked initially part time on the idea because he he was working in India five days a week, flying back to Singapore on the weekends, and I was like on my other on my other business. And so we started part time, and then uh, you know at the end of two thousand seven we we went full time and. Uh, it was a uh, real full time. It was uh, five or six years of uh, seven days a week, 12, 14 hour days, and a mini prison, prison sentence. Quite <laughs> zero, zero, seven. Yeah. 12 a.m. to 12 a.m., <laughs> seven days a week. It was like that, yeah. yeah. So, from the creation of the company to you moving over to become a venture capitalist, yeah. what are the most interesting milestones that probably Guru has achieved? I think it's pretty interesting because you have that process of first building the product yeah. and then bringing it to the market. And of course, there is mass market adoption. In fact, yeah. when I was searching for my property in 2011, I was using property Google to check numbers. <laughs> so, tell me about that. Yeah, so, yeah, probably we've gone through three or four key phases of, of the building of the business. So the first stage was really around, you know, just proving the concept. So we knew this kind of business model worked in other markets. Was it actually going to work here or not? Because in those days, all the behavior was in the newspapers, right? So that all the agents were advertising newspapers, all the property developers were advertising newspapers, all the consumers were sitting around looking at newspapers. At the same time, you had this big influx of predominantly foreigners coming into the country who perhaps had been used to doing stuff online. So initially it was, you know, would this concept work that people would go online, look for property, and actually then start making inquiries and make decisions online? And so we, we, you know, we had to kind of cobble things together really, really in a very sort of bootstrap kind of way. And, um, you know, we, we did that, and we're by the end of the first full year of operations, we not only managed to kind of start to prove the concept, but also show that we can generate leads, which generates in transactions, which generates in commissions to the property agents. The consumers were finding property and actually transacting property, and also we were able to generate revenue. You know, so we had about $300,000 revenue in our, in our first full year. 
and so we, we went out on day one with a business model that was, you know, we're going to charge for this. And uh, so we've demonstrated that there's been proof the concept, you can create some value for the consumer and help them make decisions, and also for the advertisers and agents in those days, and then also build some revenue around that. So prove the concept and then build a successful, solid Singapore organization. Uh, so we built Singapore into a cash flow positive 2009, profitable 2010, and it's been profitable ever since then, business. And so it wasn't until, you know, we'd managed to build that solid base when about, you know, we had competition there, you know, quite a lot of competition, but to get the business into a position where it was, you know, a very clear market leader with about 75% of all the people doing stuff online were using Property Guru. And that hasn't really changed in the last sort of seven or eight years. It's kind of really stayed there. And, uh, you know, sort of carried on obviously investing in the Singapore business whilst then making a decision in 2011 into 2012 to then expand internationally. So that's kind of a second stage. And that second stage was, um, was probably the hardest because, you know, we'd kind of built reasonably successful business in Singapore and we felt now we just cut and paste roll out Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand and went one market to four markets in four months and the consequence of that was a number of issues associated with that so one was around you know just all the growing pains we hired 200 people for the international operations we lost 200 people we had to hire 200 people again huge churn we made some mistakes in terms of the country managers we hired we had you know, one effectively stealing money from the organization, passing it to his wife. We had one which is actually working for us and also another organization at the same time in Indonesia. We had an alcoholic in, in Thailand. You know, when, when you're relatively small and you have a limited reason, you have to be a little bit creative about <laughs> and maybe sometimes compromising on, on talent. We had some issues in terms of, you know, at that stage, the whole organization was focused on Singapore. Singapore sales, marketing, customer services, finance, HR. And this Singapore organization, we then said, by the way, we now need you to build websites in Malaysia, Indonesia, and Thailand, mobile apps on iPhone for consumers and also for agents, Android for consumers and also agents, multiple languages in Thailand, in Indonesia, etc. So all at the same time as keeping the Singapore business really, really going well and growing, you know, it's growing at you know, two or three X every year. Whilst doing that, continue to build other stuff. So we stretched the organization to breaking point over about two years. And so, you know, people were trying to hire, train, launch new websites, launch the business, come up with a marketing plan. And the people doing that was this Singapore organization. So when you do that, a few things happen. One is people get very, very stretched to the business in Singapore then starts to suffer. And uh, the innovation that was taking place, which was driving a lot of this, uh, the morale and, and uh, success, you, you know, get some feedback, change, get some feedback, change. Suddenly, the product and tech organization was the bottleneck, was previously was leading the organization, because then they were fixing bugs in Thailand, fixing bugs in Malaysia. And so the whole innovation machine ground to halt, which then had a follow-on impact on morale. So we went for a period of about two years where you know it was extremely challenging. I was effectively living in Malaysia. My partner Yanni was basically living in Thailand, and so you know between the two of us, you know we were away from the core Singapore business, and the Singapore team were also then stretched. And then you know learning lessons around product market fit. You know we just took we took the Singapore product and we rolled it out into the multiple markets, expecting it to work because it had been successful in Singapore. And of course, property is very localized right so how people look what they look for is very different in each market so what we then realized we had to then so if you look at something like Thailand people look for neighborhoods it's Sukhumvit, Salam, it's uh, Tonglor 
Uh, whereas in Singapore, they maybe look at the condo directory, they know the condo name, they, they, want, they want Aspen Heights, they want to sale, they want whatever. And so we had to then rebuild and rethink about the, the product proposition in each of the markets as well, customize it a little bit. And uh, also go through some lessons around organizational structures. We went from a very decentralized country manager, country manager, mini CEOs running their own shows in each of the markets to a more standardized, you know, functional organization structure where you start to get the best practice. So that, you know, the marketing organization reported in effectively to the CMO, the finance organization reported into the CFO sitting in KL. So it wasn't so much where the people sat, it was more around the actual best practice. So you get the same, you know, best processes and systems being implemented across the organization, even if you are customizing the, the user experience for the product, the front end, the actual processes and systems start to get standardized. And when we did that, that really then had a really big impact. So rather than having a mini CEO in each market, effectively the country manager became sales head uh, and, and a figurehead for the company in that country. Mm. Um, and then, you know, the sort of last three or four years have been very much around sort of having gone through that growing pains internationalization, it's been more around sort of professionalizing. You know, we started off with the finance organization. So when we had our, our investment from Deutsche Telekom, one of the things they said was, look, guys, you know, doing a great job, you're growing fast, and, you know, we like the innovation that's taking place, but, you know, we need to get some compliance governance and finance working because it was a mess, and it was a mess, right? Because we were just running, uh, and we were not paying as much attention to that as we should have done. So professionalize the finance organization, professionalize the marketing organization, professionalize the sales organization, HR, so both in terms of hiring C-levels and leadership team, but also putting in place processes and systems that actually support all of that. And that's taken perhaps the last sort of uh, three years or so. And a big thing that's consumed myself and my co-founder has been, you know, how do we diversify the business? Because, you know, three or four years ago, 95% of the business was, was Singapore. Even though we'd expanded, the other countries weren't really bringing in the revenue yet. We were still heavily reliant on Singapore agents in Singapore. So we wanted to set about diversifying. And so if we fast forward to where we are today, it's now, you know, 50% Singapore, 50% outside of Singapore. It's about 50% agents, about 50% property developers. We took the whole business back to profitability again, and uh, you know, brought in you know a couple of rounds of you know some some really solid shareholders on board, including you know TPG, which is one of the largest private equity companies, KKR, one of the largest you know, private equity companies, and they've all and also Square Peg and also MTech, which is an Indonesian uh, media company, they've all contributed really really uh, highly to the business, and we have a great board and great shareholders, and the business is a lot better shape now. Than was you know when we started the whole internationalization process. Mm. So I think then you transition out, right? Yes. You were the CEO, yes. Yeah. And then you transition out. And yeah. I think, okay, there are there are many different types of founder stories. Yeah. And I think they all have reasons of for doing it. Yeah. What was the rationale for, for you to set down as a CEO? And what is the thinking process in terms of putting your current CEO in charge? Sure. Sure. Yeah, this was, uh, for me, it was a very personal decision. So about four years ago, so whilst I've been building the business and living and breathing the business seven days a week and put all my energy into this, my wife was putting all the energy into you know, how do we actually have a family and how do we have kids and went through a whole bunch of fertility treatment and IVF, etc. And finally, we had twins in 2012. 
So in 2014, the kids were two, and I hadn't seen them for two years, you know. And it was a, they were celebrating their second birthday. And I, I kind of had a bit of a realisation that, you know, I'm, I'm working seven days a week and just completely consumed by the business. And I didn't want to get to when the kids were 10 or 12 and not want to spend time with their parents anymore and not see them grow up or be involved in their growing up process. And that for me was a bit of a wake-up call. So I said to my wife that by the time the kids are five, I'll be out of the operations. And she sort of laughed and went, bullshit, it's never going to happen. Uh, so I, I took it as a personal challenge to, to, to make that happen. So I, I chatted to my, my co-founder, Yanni, and he also recently had a, had a kid. He was kind of coming to the same conclusion. At the same time, we were starting to get trade sale offers. You know, we were starting to get people coming to us saying that we want to buy their business. And at that stage, the whole of the organization was funneling into Stephen Yanni. Stephen Yanni controlled and ran everything. And we were effectively the bottlenecks to the growth of the organization at that point to really, really scale. So we, we came to the conclusion that the only way in which we're going to, one, be able to at some point remove ourselves from the business, if we, you know, if the business did get acquired, then, you know, if it's totally reliant on Steve Net, we're not going to be able to escape ever. But also, for me, it was fundamentally spending more time with my kids and seeing them grow up. And that was not, that did not fit with what I was currently doing in terms of running the business and the way I was running it. So at that point, we then sat down with the board about four years ago and said, look, the role of any good leader is to build a succession plan. And we're doing that in the organization, trying to think about doing it in the organization, but we're not doing it for ourselves. And we think we should do it for ourselves. We managed to persuade them to buy into that. And, you know, and we agreed to a plan with them, which was around you know, building an executive leadership team, middle and middle management, diversifying the company, you know, so it's not so reliant just on Singapore. And we're really trying to crack our developer strategy, properly developer strategy, and then finally find a CEO. And that took about four years. The whole process from end to end took about four years. I mean, finding the CEO was actually reasonably easy, surprisingly. I thought it was going to be like one of the hardest things. What we realized was when we started to talk to people, we had, we had a, a headhunter helping us, was that there were, there were a few super talented people in the region who had very large roles running the whole of Asia Pack or running the whole of Southeast Asia or large teams, typically working for big tech US companies who were increasingly frustrated by the fact that every month they had to be on a plane back to the base saying, look, oh, here's Asia, I know it's only 10% of the revenues for the group, but, you know, come and invest more. Increasingly matrix management organization, increasingly a bit of bureaucracy taking place. And the prospect of running a very small at that stage organization, but having control of sales, marketing, product, tech, the whole thing, running the whole thing was actually quite appealing to some people. And so we had, surprisingly, some really, really talented individuals who put their names into the ring. And um, we went for a process and, um, you know, uh, we selected Harry and, you know, Harry's demonstrated just a fantastic, you know, done a fantastic job. And he made a reasonably easy, painless transition process because you know, he came in with his eyes wide open. We, you know, we had our eyes wide open. We also had a coach to, to de-risk the whole process. So we had a coach who's coaching me, a coach who's, you know, coaching Yanni and a coach, you know, Harry, and then all the three of us together when we talk all the horrible things we've been talking about to our coach, all put on the table at the same time. We had to work through some of the issues that we had. That really helped de-risk it. And uh, so that, that kind of transition process took about 18 months or so. You know, so initially, you know, Harry coming board in a new role, effectively a CEO role for nine months, and then you know, handing over, and then 12 months you know, handover process from that until you know, I, I was completely out of the operations. And uh, so that went really, really smoothly, you know, as a result of, you know, I guess myself, Yanni, and also Harry being very mature about it. 
I personally found it extremely underestimated how hard I would find it personally. Um, letting go and uh, a whole bunch of emotions around crisis of confidence, lack of purpose. You know, I felt a part of my social life had gone because suddenly I had to remove myself you know, from the organisation so give Harry the opportunity to make decisions and be the person that everyone went to rather than to Steve and not, not get involved in decisions and also missed, I discovered I had an ego through that process. I actually missed the media interviews and you know, all that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> I didn't think I would, but I did. And so it was, it was a really interesting process and it was 12, 18 months or so, it was, it was pretty, pretty challenging for me uh, personally. I think it's a very big testament for you and Yanni to take such a big step and just to help my audience, Harry was, I think, the regional managing director for LinkedIn for Asia Pacific. Exactly. exactly. For that. Right. That's not easy to hire out. No, no, no. And it's also a big risk, you know, for, for anyone like Harry coming into the organisation because you come into an organisation which has been, you know, run by two founders and, you know, and, and, and a lot of team there is associated with the founders and the founders have hired them over the last seven or eight or nine or ten years in some cases and come into that and trust the fact that founders will actually do as they say and actually give the space and let decisions be made um, was also a testament to Harry and Harry did a, has done a fantastic job continuing but also building you know put his own personal mark on and build his own team around him as well and uh, you know the, the business is in really really solid shape now mm. so you're still staying involved yeah 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 I'm still on the board I'm still involved a couple of days a week my role has moved from being day-to-day operations we had the whole of the team report to me to more strategic so you know looking at what, where we're trying to take the business in the next two or three years there's still quite a lot of M&A activity, so a lot of the competitors that we were talking, you know, that we were fighting with a few years ago, now, you know, running out of money or maybe not succeeding, now want to be required, and, and that happens across all the markets we're in. So we get quite a lot of M&A opportunities that tend to come our way, and then also looking at adjacencies to the core business. You know, how do we then leverage the brand, the reach that we have? You know, there's there's 25 million monthly consumers using the service, there's you know, 50,000 agents and property developers using the service. How do you leverage that and the brand into other things, which kind of makes sense. And so that's kind of kept me a little bit busy. As time has gone by, some of the hats that I've been wearing like those started to get filled. So uh, you know, I guess uh, in the short to medium term, I'll be able to handle my hats over. Mm, so I'll remain on the board though. <laughs> so you're a venture partner on Waymaker now. Can you introduce Wavemaker, the venture capital firm in Southeast Asia, to my audience? Sure. So Wavemaker is um, one of the leading venture capital companies in Southeast Asia. It's been around since about 2003. It's got dual headquartered in LA and also Singapore. In Southeast Asia and Singapore, portfolio now is around about 100 companies has invested in over that period of time. It's on to the third fund. It's fact just in the process of announcing the closings of parts of the third fund. It focuses uniquely on B2B and enterprise companies. So 80% of the portfolio is this very unsexy B2B companies, which you know a lot of people want to go after the big, you know, sexy consumer brands. But actually B2B is really, really interesting. And um, I really like that space because the companies, generally speaking, can generate revenue, cash flow, become profitable, you can see how that can happen. They might, might not become unicorns in the future, but to get to 100, 200, 300, 500 million dollar type businesses, building a base in Singapore, but maybe looking internationally, there's a great opportunity for that. And, uh, you know, Wavemaker has been working with these companies now for the last sort of 10, 12 years or so, and has, has a great track record. So when I chose to work 
think about what to do next, you know, I was talking to a whole bunch of different people and, uh, and including venture capital companies, but I chose Wavemaker because, because of their unique focus on this underserved space and the ability for these companies, I think, to get cash flow positive and profitable quite quickly. But also the team itself are very founder friendly. I'd spoken to some of the companies that have been working with Waymaker for two or three or four years and who had gone through tough times. And I do believe that many other VCs would have probably ditched or, or written off or tried to dispose of some of these companies. Uh, Waymaker kind of stuck with them and helped them pivot and change and grow and actually succeed in the end. And I really, really like that. You know, the founding partners, you know, uh, Paul Santos and Eric Nulas, are entrepreneurs. You know, they've, they've built and sold and created businesses of their own right and now doing venture capital. So they bring this entrepreneurial mindset to the table. The strong, founder-friendly, non-judgmental, collaborative kind of value system, which for me was really important. If I'm going to work with people, it's got to be people I, I, I like working with and I and have respect for. And so the value part was really, really important. Mm. So... What's your current role in coverage for WaveMaker? My current role is so, a so venture partner. What the hell does a venture partner mean? <laughs> I, I still don't really know. But what, what do I do as a venture partner? Uh, so I'm doing deal sourcing. I, I get probably about four or five investment opportunities a week coming to me. So that goes into WaveMaker. And um, I get involved in qualification of those deals and also other deals as well, working with the, the investment team. And that's typically, you know, working with the founders, understanding the founders, understanding the business opportunity. It's also mentoring some of the more mature startups in the portfolio. They're typically the ones that are Series A to B. They're generally looking at, okay, I've proven the business in one market. How do I think about scaling? How do I build my leadership team? How do I build my sales organization? How do I really capture value? So I might be creating some value. I'm, I'm, I've got a solution and I'm charging $10 a month per user, but actually the value I'm creating is $100,000 per user. Maybe I could charge 1000 and that, that value creation and capture piece, so the pricing and packaging and monetization piece is something I help a lot with. And also then around next stage of funding, you know, a lot of stuff I've been doing has been around you know, funding on both sides and sort of 20 deals on both sides, either as a, investing in companies myself or raising money for Property Guru or with Wavemaker putting money into companies. And so helping that, that Series A to B kind of pitch and fundraising process is another area that I help with. And I'm also very fortunate every now and again I get to see some fantastic founders and businesses that get to put my own money into it as well. So you know, I'll occasionally co-invest um, on some of those deals as well. So I you know, continue the angel investing both on my own but also uh, with, with, with Wavemaker. So yeah, it's a varied role. It's really, really exciting. And um, what's really reassuring for me is uh, the quality of the businesses I see and the founders I see is quite impressive. If I compare to what the startup scene looked like six or seven years ago, it was fairly immature and the companies I saw were relatively immature. What I see now is like a night and day difference. You know, you've got some really talented uh, and experienced in many cases entrepreneurs who've done it once or twice, they've maybe got a corporate background and now doing a startup, or they are, you know, Stanford University professor happens to be wanting to build a business in Singapore with their area of expertise. And so the quality of the people I see is, is pretty impressive. So this is my favorite question to everyone in the VC business. What's your typical day like? 
There isn't a typical day. I mean, it's, it's a combination of what I mentioned just now. I mean, it's, it's, it's fielding in, inquiries and you know, referrals from friends or friends of friends for startups who are looking for funding. It's getting involved in calls or meetings around deals. Uh, so so that there's, a, there's a lot of deal focus and mentoring. There's also a little bit around, you know, Wavemaker fund itself. So, you know, looking at talent, you know, hiring new talent, looking at, you know, how does Wavemaker position the market itself. So a little bit around that as well. Not, not so much, but some of, the, some of that as well. So I'm working with Wavemaker, you know, one day a week. In reality, it's probably most times two days a week. But that two days a week gets spread over the week. So, uh, generally speaking, Thursdays you can find me in the Wavemaker office or around the Wavemaker office, uh, and outside that I'll be uh, I'll be out and about. Mm. So, I'm very curious to ask you this. So, what are the type of attributes you look in founders from startups? You mentioned that between now and the past, the founders are becoming more professional. They know what they're getting into when they talk to a VC. They know how to pitch. What are the things that you look into them? that is important to you and this is like, I'm going to invest in this person or yeah. this company or this yeah. group of founders. Yeah. Well, it's the first thing I'd say it is very much driven by the founders because at early stage, you don't necessarily have, you know, five years or 10 years track record to be able to say, actually, look, these guys have really proven this business, you know, around the world and it's now going from a 50 million to $100 million business, right? So the founders are a critical part of this. And um, so the founders typically that look for, generally speaking, have a little bit of experience. So if, if I think about the average, by the way, the average age of the founders in the, in the Wavemaker portfolio has gone from 30s to now 40s. Generally saying, actually, the, the more successful founders in the Wavemaker portfolio have been slightly older. And that basically would say, okay, they've perhaps had one or two startups before or they've had some kind of corporate experience before. Generally speaking, not all cases, but generally speaking. The second thing is, are they are their founders able to build a team? Can they demonstrate? Because at a certain point, the founders end up being the bottleneck, as I said for myself. And then can the founders then start to build the executive team and retain that executive team? And we see time and time again with companies that they're, they're, they're hiring, losing, hiring, losing, hiring, losing, because they're still controlling everything, right, t- t- too tightly. So founders who can build teams. Founders who are passionate and are thinking through things differently, but can articulate what they're trying to do to address a real pain. So quite often, believe it or not, when I meet startups, they're not able to even address the pain they're addressing. So if I think about Property Guru, the pain we were addressing was like this big property market, and it was highly transparent. You're going to spend a million dollars on your first property in Singapore, maybe, without any information. It's completely out of control. It's a really, really big pain. It's like a $250 billion pain that we were trying to fix. So is there a real pain that the founders are trying to address? And is their solution something which is either unique or defendable that they can build a competitive moat around? So strong founders, strong founding team, usually with a little bit of experience, but not necessarily very clear in terms of what they're trying to do and very driven by where they're trying to get to and able to articulate that. So if you, and you can normally tell if you ask the founder five, six, seven, eight questions, the clarity of the thought process in terms of being able to address those typically will give you some clues. Mm-hmm. Then is it a big pain that they're trying to address and does their solution really uniquely or can be defended address that problem? And then lastly, how big can this get? Because quite often, yes, there's a pain, yes, the solution addresses that pain and it can become from $1 million to $5 million solution. 
the total addressable market might be $50 million. You kind of think, well, maybe not. But if the total addressable market is a billion, two billion, five billion, and actually they can capture 10, 20% of that, it becomes more interesting. Mm. So can you tell me then what are the verticals that you're looking into? I understand WaveMaker does very B2B type business, very enterprise-driven yep. type business. Where are the verticals that you're really focusing on now? Well, that's a challenge because you know WaveMaker is focused around B2B early stage B2B businesses and therefore by virtue of that is sector agnostic so it doesn't focus on one particular area however you know, if you look at where the successful companies that we've invested in or we're looking at now and actually currently on the, on the table you see a lot in healthcare life sciences because there's some great opportunities there we see a whole ton of companies which are purporting to be AI machine learning companies, but in reality are not, so you have to go try and weedle through that. But good application of AI and ML, for example, financial services, we've seen some really interesting companies there, so using machine learning at scale and using technology at scale to be able to address some of these issues in financial services. And there's a great company in, in the portfolio called Silent8, which is doing EKYC for banks, uh, got some great traction in that space. Education. Agritech has been another area, you know, so really quite unsexy, right? Mm. Really boring. But if you can help a farmer increase yield, an individual farmer who's living not, you know, almost hand to mouth, mm. you can increase their income twofold, then it has a massive impact not just on that farmer, but the farming community, the village, and the broader community. So, you know, there's a company called eFishery that, uh, that we make invest in, which basically doubles the yield of fish farmers in Indonesia and um, you know, it has a massive, massive impact. Currently there's a wave of companies going into what is called the PropTech space yeah. and yeah. have been operated in the PropTech space. Yeah. I would say that Property Group is probably one of the first companies that <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. Before, that. Before, before the word was invented. Yeah, yeah, before, before we work and before all these companies yeah. have up. What are the key opportunities there for startups to solve? Yeah, so, so think about PropTech. So PropTech has become another one of those, one of those buzzwords. And it's, it's a big opportunity because obviously property, largest single asset class in the world. It's you know, sort of $500 trillion worth of assets in the property market. It's archaic. The property industry has not fundamentally changed in hundreds of years. And this is one of the challenges about PropTech, actually, because you've got very entrenched bricks and mortar traditional businesses doing things in a very traditional bricks and mortars kind of way and hasn't changed for hundreds of years. So whilst the opportunity is huge, it's trillions and trillions of dollars, technology is an enabler to, to support use of technology in the real estate industry, there are a lot of barriers to it. So it's still quite challenging. But where are the opportunities lie? If you think about the real estate value chain, you've got everything from, you know, how do you value uh, land, research the land to be able to buy to finance the purchase of that land, to then assess what you should build on that land, to then uh, the design to construction, digitizing all of that, construction, how do you digitize that, um, the whole sales and marketing, how do you digitize that, and that's a big area that probably Guru play in. And then also then how do you then, once you've got the asset, how do you maximize the asset, whether it's leasing it out or selling that asset. Now, prop tech can play a role in that whole value chain. Now, I personally, get more excited by the B2B opportunities here because the B2C side is essentially that sales and marketing machine and that's kind of been, I believe, by and large, been done already. There are some new variations of like you know, digital agency starting to take place but 
by and large, I think that's that's done. The bits that haven't been is you know how does how does a property developer really digitise? How does how do they finance? How do they get access to financing? Can you create more liquidity? So, for example, one of the areas where I think is really interesting is you know um, as you start you know we're just on we're on day one of blockchain and and, and the, the impact that's going to have on all industries. But if you look at the real estate industry, one of the things it can do is enable fractional ownership in a very secure way so you could take a building or a fund split it up into into small pieces and allow people to be able to invest so one of the challenges of real estate is accessibility so how do i get on that property ladder i need a million dollars or half a million dollars or hundred thousand dollars it's a lot of money right firstly access and affordability on real estate secondly liquidity so if you can address those two with real estate, you want to win it. Now I believe you know blockchain can help some of that into the fractional. So if you can go to a, a property and say, right, we're going to take twenty percent of this property and we're going to effectively tokenize that and allow people to buy essentially tokens in a property or a fund, and then on top of that, how do you then create liquidity on a an exchange, which is a digital security exchange? Mm. Then that's a huge opportunity, right? And then we're just on effectively on day one in that space, and so. That's one example of like that whole liquidity pool that can take place. Yeah, so I think there's lots of lots of opportunities, and I see probably one or two a week in the prop tech space and the broader sort of smart city space around prop tech. Just one final question: During your experience and what you have seen, how would you advise a startup founder today if they want to expand into Southeast Asia? There's a difference between starting in Singapore and expanding into Indonesia. There's also a difference between when you start from Thailand and you want to go into Singapore and Indonesia. Right. Well, first of all, I think it depends on the business model. Is it B2C or B2B? If it's B2C, then typically the I believe the user experience will need to be very fundamentally different and you will need to then effectively build the business in each of the markets separately. So therefore, don't run before you can walk. Build a solid base and then use that base to go to the next market, use that base to go to the next market, rather than go... 10 pins on a map and say, look, I'm now across the whole of Asia, but actually the depth is not there. If it's a B2B business, I think the, the ability to scale across multiple markets is a lot easier other than language. That's two things to think about. I think speed of expansion is going to, be, again, based on the business model. If the business model is replicable easily, the barriers entry are low, you may want to think about expanding faster rather than slower. Um, but going back to the point I made right at the very start, don't also think you have to run super fast because things do take longer than they actually think they might do. Every single market in Southeast Asia is very, very different in terms of building your business internally, so the culture, the hiring, and, and how that team's going to run versus also external in terms of how people might use your product and service. So, you know, it's uh, highly, highly complex. Now, I think about expansion from one market to then the complexity goes up level of two, go to another market, it's another level of two, and you just keep the business starts getting more and more complex. So only do it when you're ready, only do it when you've built and thought about building the regional team. Um, otherwise, you're going to stretch your organization to breaking point as we learned. Steve, many thanks for coming on the show and sharing the story of Property Guru and what you're currently doing. And I'm sure there will be some more times that we're going to have this conversation again. So in closing, I want to ask two questions. First question, can you recommend both movie, podcast, anything that has just recently impacted your personal or work life? <laughs> uh, in terms of uh, things I've consumed, I guess, a whole ton of movies, but I guess that one of the things that's had the biggest impact on me was um, Blue Planet 2 which was a David Attenborough documentary around our planet and particularly the oceans and just the whole impact that we're having on our environment and climate change and that was 
it left a left a big impact on me in terms of the damage that these horrible humans are causing on the planet and just just and it's and the sheer scale that we're doing it at. That was kind of scary. Purely from a fun point of view, a movie I watched recently which I really quite George Vice about the Dick Cheney Dick Cheney years, and I highly recommend that one. And then I think from a business building point of view, the, the books that have had a big impact on me has been four: Delivering Happiness, Sony Sai, It All Begins with Why. Uh, Simon Sinek, mastering the Rockefeller habits in terms of building an, an SME from scratch, and um, very dry, boring book, but actually quite good in terms of leadership skills, level five leadership skills, good to great. You can definitely Google me at Bernard Leung, and you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, Luminary, Himalaya, and Spotify. You can definitely tweet to me your comments, and of course, most likely email to me, and please keep a note that we have a live show on the 5th of September in Singapore. We work Suntech City. Tickets will be on sale, and I will let you know when that is. Once again, uh, Steve, many thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, brother.